When we go to the doctor, we expect treatment decisions and guidelines to be based on the very best evidence from the very best studies. But as many as one in 50 research papers may be tainted with bad data, bias, even outright fraud. Now, these are studies that can influence decisions about which drugs to give a woman bleeding after childbirth or supplements to keep ageing bones strong. Richard van Norden's an editor for the journal Nature and has been looking at bogus medical research for more than 10 years. His latest story in Nature magazines called Medicine is plagued by untrustworthy clinical trials. He joins us from London. So let's start with the medical research that's fake or flawed. How big is the problem here? Well, that that is that is the million-dollar question is how big is this problem? So some researchers think that randomized controlled trials is the gold standard of medical research, and they think that a frighteningly large proportion of these trials may be, may be faked or fatally flawed. And I wanted to know why they think this. And to be honest with you, a lot of this is researchers with bitter experience of trawling through the statistics of trials and journals and saying, oh, this this seems unlikely, this data seems too good to be true. And when they write to the authors, not getting satisfactory replies and becoming really worried about this. But we do actually have a little bit of data and not just personal experience. So one example is John Carlyle. He's an anaesthetist in the UK and he's an editor at a journal. He looked at all the manuscripts that came into him that reported randomized controlled trials. And he thinks that about 26% of the papers are impossible to trust. He called them zombie trials because they look like real research. But when he looked into the statistics, he saw that they were kind of hollow shells. There wasn't any reliable information underneath. But he could only do this because he could look very closely at the spreadsheets of individual patient data for these trials. He's an editor, remember, and he gets to ask for this data. Most of the time, he didn't get these spreadsheets. And when he didn't get the spreadsheets, he couldn't determine that what the flawed rate was. He saw about 2%, 1% he thought had problems. So his experience suggests that if journal editors could look at the raw data and could scour it very closely, maybe as many as a quarter of these trials could be faked or flawed. Is this just anesthesiology? Well, it turns out that researchers in other fields too, in pain research and women's health, uh, for COVID trials, they think there are big problems there as well. So there's this quite frightening concern that a lot of trials and medical journals might be at the very least untrustworthy and they're just sitting there and um, people haven't really dug in to check. 26% is a really high figure for this, over a quarter. And I mean, the problem here, are we talking sloppiness, um... Is it bias or is it just outright fraud? Well, what Carlyle is saying is we're not talking simple sloppiness here. We're talking um, so many duplicated numbers or figures in the spreadsheets or so many impossible statistics that, that he thinks it's fake. But, I mean, he has written to some of these authors. Um, he's gone on to see some of these studies published in other journals with different numbers than the manuscripts that came into him. So... It's it's looking more like um, made up than it is looking like accident. And other researchers, uh, epidemiologist Ian Roberts, he asserts that a lot of trials will be fabricated if you search for them. And Ben Moll, uh, who specialises in obstetrics and gynaecology at Monash University in Australia, he says that 
some 20 to 30 percent of the randomized clinical trials in women's health are suspect as well. But I, other people say this is just fear-mongering, this is just scaremongering. And really what we are just starting to see is people thinking, hmm, maybe we should take a, a systematic look at this. You know, maybe we should look at um, you know, all the trials involved in a lot of systematic reviews, go back over them and see what we get. And that's looking a bit worrying as well. Uh, there's, there's one example um, in my report on that. If we can talk about the maternal health for a minute, because that does seem to, as you say, attract quite a bit of questionable research. Can you give me some sort of examples of the kinds of things we're talking about here? Yeah, absolutely. So one example uh, is this uh, Cochrane review on um, should you give steroids to people who are going to, to people who are undergoing cesarean section births and does this reduce breathing problems in their babies? Um, and the actual question is, should you do this late on in pregnancy? It's known to be beneficial when given for early preterm babies. So we have this review and the review says, yeah, there are four trials here that look good. One's in Britain, three are in Egypt. And looks like steroids may reduce rates of breathing problems. And it was cited a lot of clinical guidelines. And then in 2021, uh, Ben Moll, who I mentioned, and others sort of looked into these in depth and raised concerns about the Egyptian trials. Um, saying, you know, the, the ratio of males to female babies looks impossible. And, and when he wrote to the authors, one told him he lost the data when he's moving out. It wasn't very satisfactory. And eventually, one of these big trials has been retracted now. Um, and this review was redone. Uh, and this time, when the review was redone, all the Egyptian trials were excluded. And this time, the conclusion was there's insufficient data. So we go from steroids may help in this situation to there's insufficient data. And this is something that is uh, in many uh, clinical guidelines. Uh, and uh, in Australia, for example, uh, Ben Moll says that clinical guidelines say administering steroids later in pregnancy could be beneficial, but now we don't know. So it's, it's that kind of uh, issue that we're talking about. I suppose this is the thing. When you're talking about randomised control trials, that, I suppose, coupled with peer review is is sort of seen as being the gold standard here. So how surprising is it that that you're getting these high numbers of either no data or not good enough data in these sorts of studies? It is kind of surprising in another way, kind of not. And one reason why kind of not is that journals have largely operated on trust that when you send, they're basically untrustworthy. But luckily, because there was a large multi-center trial, they kind of said the same thing. So they may have um, changed the evidence base for the effects, maybe have exaggerated it. But, you know, did they cause harm to patients? Um, it's not so clear. Hmm. You'd, you'd have to think that this, this, this must have happened. Absolutely. What do you think can be done about this? Because where does all this leave the patient, the layperson, um, you know, who's maybe looking to get a treatment or they're maybe told, oh, this treatment's part of a clinical trial or it's based on a clinical trial. Um, wh what should you do? Well, I think the issue is that still uh, most clinical trials, I still think, uh, especially um, in large countries run over multi-centre hospitals, are going to be genuine. I think it's these the idea that there are lots of small single centre trials coming in from other countries, I think that's what's causing the bulk of the problem here, which is not to say there's, there's not um, 
problems you know everywhere but um uh, minor things but i think journals need to um get their act together and start being much more demanding about free registration about sharing individual patient data when trials are reviewed about verification that trials occurred and they need to show that that's happened um in order to regain trust in this system because it's it's very very alarming to hear about I should say that when um, a medical treatment is approved by a drug regulator, by like, like by the FDA, the FDA does see uh, individual patient data from companies. It doesn't necessarily release them to the public, but the FDA people who make the decision about whether to approve a drug do see that. So it's probable that what we're looking at here is is more like the kinds of stuff we were talking about that's in medical journals. I think that if you're uh, asked to take part in a trial. Um, then you can be pretty sure that it's a genuine trial and obviously you should be giving informed consent and um, you should be asking for details and you should also be informed about the results of the trial. Because what we're talking about here is probably trials that didn't really happen. Um, and so uh, no one was sort of asked to take part in those trials probably, or we don't know what actually happened. It, it might be more of a concern if you're someone in a hospital um, in Egypt or in China where it might not be clear if you're um, part of a clinical trial. Um, so Ben Moll says the problem in Egypt in his experience is, is lack of oversight and, and lack of stringent checks from institutions. Um, and Egypt's parliament only published its first clinical research law in December 2020, right? So we're starting to see some steps being taken. In China, we're starting to see some cracking down on these paper mills. Um, so some academics have actually confessed to this and they've been demoted or they've been said their careers have ended and so on. Um, so ultimately, it's got to be fixes within these countries at the source. Um, why are academics wanting to get these papers? Because they can advance their careers by getting these papers out. So that method of... Um, rewarding researchers, that needs to change as well. Um, and that will stop these suspect trials being produced um, in the first place. Thank you very much for your time today. Really interesting to hear um, what you had to say. So thank you so much.